Chapter Seven, Part Two of Forty Thousand Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betty B. Forty Thousand Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. Across the Pacific, Part Two. Sunday, September Sixth. There was a parade of all the officers and crew on deck at 10 a.m., the sailors in their clean white suits and the officers in blue frock coats, after which we had morning service, the captain reading the prayers and the doctor the lessons. We were able to see the Southern Cross for the first time, with the tail of the great bear above the horizon. The stars have been very beautiful on some of these still clear nights, but we have lost the moon that we had at first. Thursday, September 12th. A man in the steerage died yesterday afternoon of acute rheumatism, aggravated by the damp of the trade winds during the last few days. He suffered terribly. I awoke with the tolling of the bell at seven this morning. The body, sewn up in canvas and covered with a union jack, lay on the deck, and in the gray of the early dawn a reverend little crowd was collected around it. The captain in the center reading the service and the officers and a few of the passengers standing round. At the words, we therefore commit his body to the deep, the sailors, in their white Sunday suits, lifted the heavily weighted plank on which the body lay, and it slid over the side of the ship, falling with a dull thud and splash into the waters. Friday, September 13th. All this time we have been in the Tropic of Cancer, and now that we are going through that much dreaded three or four days of crossing the equator we learn that it is not absolutely necessary to suffer so terribly from the heat our deck cabins being on the port side we have always had a pleasant breeze flowing in night and day having accomplished that great feat of the traveller the crossing of the line we can never again be troubled with any nonsense about neptune coming on board we are now entering the Tropic of Capricorn. There is a sound on board ship which it is always pleasant to hear, the bell tolling the hour of the watches. The day is divided into three watches of four hours each. The last watch of from 4 to 8 p.m. is divided into two and is called the dog watch. It prevents the necessity of one officer always coming on duty at the same hour every day. The ship was supposed not to be making satisfactory progress, only running from 280 to 300 miles a day, notwithstanding a daily consumption of 50 tons of cold. The officers think her bottom must be foul. Sunday, September 14th. On the 15th day out, we again sighted land in the Navigator or Samoan group, and we passed within a mile of one of the islands to receive and send off a mail. This island looked of unsurpassed beauty. It has an undulating skyline with the shore deeply indented by many inland creeks. A curious needle projection of rocks finishes the land on one side. The brightest tropical vegetation covered the entire island, finding its foothold on the shelving rocks that dipped into the sea, marking a brilliant line of foam along the dark ridge. On a shining white beach in a small bay, a few extinguisher-topped huts from Tutuila, while a palm grove and a white road running through it can be seen behind. The greatest excitement prevailed on board 
as a large flat-bottomed boat impelled by paddles filled with natives put off and came alongside of us what magnificent men these samoans were with skins not dusky but a light brown the lower part of their bodies wonderfully tattooed in patterns of blue the samoans considered a sign of manhood and endured the agony of tattooing unflinchingly whilst still boys their hair was stiffened and wiry dyed with a preparation of lime to a bright yellow ochre that somehow seems quite in keeping with the fresh oily color of their skins some wore the tail of a bird stuck through it whilst the males were being delivered over the side to the rowing boat that came off from a schooner flying the stars and stripes they swarmed up the rope ladder pushing each other off into the water vociferating and gesticulating wildly offering for sale shells colored bead baskets battle axes and spearheads of their own manufacture the transactions were made under difficult circumstances they in their boat bobbing up and down and we hanging over the side of the ship or putting our heads out of the portholes but we found that they had a very full understanding of the dollar knew the value of their own articles refused to take less or to resign the object on board till the money had been handed over we bought a very cunningly inlaid battle axe for half a dollar a line of black shiny rocks at the furthest point of the island joins the great conical-shaped bass rock to the mainland through which you get a peep of the blue ocean fretted by rocks and narrow channels one solitary palm tree rears a graceful head on one of these rocks the great bass is simply covered with a mass of tropical vegetation with a grove of palm trees fringing the top the parasites and creepers hang over a dark cave hollowed out under the cliff through which the waves dash in and out with a rushing swirl some conical shaped red rocks standing out solitary in the ocean reminded me of those in anstey's cove at torquay the water round about the shore takes a beautiful aquamarine mingling imperceptibly with the darker blue of the ocean so that you cannot see where it begins or ends coming round the bass rock the view of the other side of the island opened out and looking in the distance from the dotted clumps like one vast banana plantation tapering at the far end to a rocky cape through glasses i could see at regular intervals a column of spray shot up high into the air through what may have been a blowhole or an opening at the end of a cave through which when the water rushes in it spouts with tremendous force or it may have been only a mighty rock against which the powerful swell of the pacific sent up a column of spray it is one of the charms of touching at these islands they leave such an impression of dim wonderland such a vision of tropical forests which we people in imagination with the descriptive pages in books of travel beautiful tutuila fading already on the horizon as i write how we long to linger on her shores for a time monday september fifteenth during the night we have been passing near the scattered group of the society islands from the course mapped out on the chart in the companion way you would think we threaded our way amongst them but we did not sight land we have a sudden change in the temperature today the thermometer has fallen from eighty five degrees to seventy four degrees the warm breeze is replaced by a cold wind 
and the blue sky by drifting clouds the sullen rolling waves are again tipped with white horses we have left behind us the balmy atmosphere and the bright color of sea and sky on leaving the tropics before night we were having a good tossing and we held a concert in the saloon with the wind playing an accompaniment in the rigging overhead ten pounds were collected for the shipwrecked mariners society of australia some athletic sports had been organized on board some sack racing and ring tilting for the gentlemen and quoits and an egg race running with an egg and a spoon for the ladies the captain promised a bouquet to the winner of the latter race which turned out to be myself and it was to be presented on this occasion there had been great speculation on board about the production of flowers after being at sea ten days the captain would only say it was growing the purser brought it in with some ceremony a flat bouquet of a beautiful pale green color with a delicate suspicion of pink stripes there was a low murmur of admiration and surprise and it turned out to be only a cabbage a young man of artistic tastes in the steerage had originated the idea and colored it slightly with cochineal tuesday september sixteenth a dull leaden sky with a heavy swell the remains of the gale of yesterday there is nothing more solemn than to lie awake on a rough night like last night feeling the reverberation of the heavy seas striking the ship broadside hearing the creaking and straining of every plank feeling the bound the ship gives as she leaps into the trough of the sea and is raised again on the breaker it makes us think how slight is the framework sustaining some two hundred fifty people on an angry sea how a leak the size of the little finger would be enough to sink every one of us on board we have had another short run and are doing no better with a headwind and sea today. Wednesday, September 17th. I saw the sun rise this morning with the most delicate rose color tints, but this was not the most beautiful part of the sky. It was the lovely form of the clouds, billowy masses, delicately delineated with pink, shading into the palest salmon color. Thursday, September 18th was not for us as we were crossing the 180th meridian the curious phenomenal feature which you meet with in going round the world difficult to understand well-nigh impossible for the unscientific to put into words this is friday september 19th said a notice on the companionway on what should have been thursday we may be in tomorrow or latest the day after we are nearing our journey's end and already beginning to think with dread of the packing and early starts the constant move on from which we have had such a complete rest what an interminable time those three weeks seemed when we left frisco how short they have really been i have been writing for many hours every day putting into shape and form all the rough notes and journal of our travels across america and i look round with regretful happiness at my little cabin where i have spent so many happy hours sitting before the table improvised out of the washing stand lurching about on a camp stool trying to be steady enough to write it is nearly over now and we are very sorry a squall came up very suddenly in the afternoon and we had a grand storm for an hour which still further delayed our progress saturday september twentieth endless speculations were going on all day as to what time we should get into Auckland. 
We were still battling against a head wind, and the nine o'clock at night was changed to ten, and the ten to a dubious eleven. It seemed impossible to settle to anything, and we wandered aimlessly about after packing all in readiness to land. At about four p.m. land was sighted long before there was any tangible line on the horizon for the unpracticed to see, which grew and grew till there was an outline visible. By dinner time we were passing under the lee of a rocky coast of what we supposed was part of the island of New Zealand, but which was really the great outer barrier, a succession of rocky islands which protect the coast and harbor. In the dusk we saw the revolving spark of the lighthouse on Tiritiri Point, some twenty miles away from Auckland, and the blue light of the pilot's boat quivered on the water in the distance. Soon after we took him on board. The mails were piled up and crowded the decks ready for landing. We became more and more miserable waiting about in uncertainty whether we were to land that night or not. The great advantage of these mail steamers is that you know you are going as fast as steam can carry you, with the bonus awaiting them of ten pounds for every hour the mails arrive before contract time. But then, on the other hand, at whatever time of the day or night the ship arrives in port, they only wait to unload cargo and then steam off. The general opinion at 11 p.m. seemed to be that we need not land, as they would unload all night and not leave till six the next morning. So we went to bed, but not to sleep. There was a pandemonium of stamping children overhead, a general meeting in the companionway outside, a rocket fizzing up into the air, and the cannon being left off as we entered the harbor. Then, as we drew alongside of the wharf, there was the shouting of the flymen, mingling with the general din. The purser came to tell us we must land. We dressed and put our things together in the dark, for the lamps had been put out, and then we stood on the deck and looked despairingly around. We were landing in a strange country, in an unknown town. We knew not where to go at this midnight hour, when we heard a voice asking for us, and Captain Devaney, secretary of the Northern Club, appeared, having very kindly come down at that late hour on learning the steamer was signaled. The hotels in Auckland are impossibly bad, and at the instance of a friend in England, he had secured good rooms for us. What a warm welcome to New Zealand we had after all. The very cabmen seemed to be expecting us, and whilst one drove to the rooms to give warning of our arrival, two more conveyed our luggage and ourselves from the wharf, and the custom house officials passed us without demur. There was no time for any goodbyes on the steamer. All was darkness and confusion there, and we were off in a few minutes from the shouting and struggling on the wharf. Very strange it seemed to be immediately afterwards driving swiftly through the quiet streets of Auckland by moonlight at one o'clock in the morning. Captain Devaney and I had driven on, leaving C to follow, and after we had obtained entrance at the cost of a broken bell, to one of the low white houses, I was left to myself in the midst of a midnight stillness. It gave me quite an eerie feeling to see on the tables around in this far-off land of the Maoris the catalogue of this year's academy, a photo of Mary Anderson, and the last new valse. I took up Black's handbook to Killarney and began reading without understanding about the beauties of Bantry and Glengariff, till the sound of approaching wheels told me of C's arrival. I went out on the steps to meet him, and with the help of the flyman he brought in the luggage. 
as we bolted the door the australia gave us a parting screech letting off steam in the wharf far below us end of section twelve